my name is Lauren, and I am so excited to have our Megan Jeffries. She is faculty at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy. Megan describes her career in 20 seconds. She graduated from pharmacy school from the University of Wyoming. She did her PGY-1 at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, her PGY-2 at Barnes-Jewish in St. Louis. She went from assistant to associate professor at Roseman and then back to assistant at the University of Colorado. She loves creating, doesn't mind assessing, and hates writing about it. I just have to say, knowing Megan and working with Megan, I disagree with that last sentence because <laughs> she is fantastic at all three of those things. Uh. It's Qu- true. Quality of output does not necessarily <laughs> relate to enjoyment of the process. That's fair, but she. But thank you. <laughs> she has very high quality stuff. All right. Well, welcome, Megan. Um. So, first question, classic interview question. Tell me about yourself and your teaching style. So, um, I came into academia from sort of the side door, I think, and so I never had any sense in my training that I wanted to be a teacher. So I think I was the classic person that was clinician to, t- to classroom with, uh, you know, a vague idea of that was. <laughs> uh, the first classroom I was in was at Roseman, which is a three-year accelerated program with a block schedule, which is from class, uh, your kids are in class from eight to three, and you are responsible for that day. You wow. have six hours to teach and spend time as you wish. Wow. So... Um, in that, uh, you're really forced right off the bat to be, um, to schedule time in your lectures to do things. And yeah. So, Cause it's a huge block of time. It is massive yeah. and it's terrifying to just plan out <laughs> six hours of continual, uh, you know, I guess historically, which would be lecture, which would make, um, you would quickly lose your mind. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but, and you uh, could finish like two hours early and then just be right, like sitting Just there. like hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The time management is really a, 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 an interesting process to learn how to do it. Um, but Roseman had really the, um, had thought about their curriculum and sort of uh, the idea of mastery learning. It was a 90% pass-fail curriculum. And they said that on average, your classroom should be either one-third to one-half active learning. So that was the first time I used the, heard the word active learning. <laughs> that was so, um, but yeah, and then the classic, I think there's like the AJPE article from eons ago that was like, here are the types of active learning you can use. Think, pair, share. There Number you go. one. I mean, we are in love with muddiest point, think, think pair, share, like no one's business. Um, but anyways, so that was sort of, I think, cut my teeth uh, as an educator. And since then... Um, have really become an advocate and a sort of, I guess, a prophet of active learning in all of its different mortalities. And now really looking at some of the scholarship of mm-hmm. active learning. Um, that's one of my, my, my babies right now. As you know, as a yes. frequent collaborator, <laughs> yes. an expert in the area. So you were talking about how you have embraced active learning. I know you embrace active learning. You're so creative with all of it. So two-part question. First one is, what is an effective strategy that you've implemented, whether in the classroom or experiential? And maybe it's one that even surprised you that it was effective. I know I've had that. And then one that just failed and was not great, Uh, either, again, classroom or experiential. Good questions. Um, Okay, so let's do something. It's sort of a technique that's been effective. One of the things that... um, I thought would be relatively mundane is going through worksheets in the classroom. Mm. So they'll get the like, here's all the content you need to know in the handout form 
um, in a really minor flipped classroom-esque thing, mm-hmm. right? So in, in the infectious disease world, as you know, there is no text. I mean, like, no. you could certainly tell them to read Mandel's volumes one and two, <laughs> I suppose, but there's really no, like, cookbook methodology no. for teaching uh, fundamentals, mm-hmm. infectious disease fundamentals. And so I think for the most part, teachers, uh, especially ID teachers, make their own content. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, distribute that to them, all of the basic stuff. Like, here's the, you know, pharmacology and the PK, PD stuff that you need to know. And then having a, a workbook that's essentially blank or has a skeleton, mm-hmm. you know, map out, and then going through that in classroom. I thought students would find it to be uh, boring, um, and they don't. They're so into it. They think it's really effective. Um, there's nothing like bells and whistles about it, which I love bells and whistles, sure. but I think probably um, it's just, you know, sort of like putting in the grind, putting in the work, but they see it as really effective. So handouts, worksheets, uh, workbooks is something that I do all the time now. And I think that's really interesting for a couple of reasons, because I think it's low tech, yeah. which is great. Like you said, we yep. love the video games, the bells and whistles, the apps, yep. the whole nine yards, but I like that it's low tech, but I also like that it's kind of a form of, it sounds like of a guided reading. So hopefully yeah. they've done the reading and they've done the prep and this is a form of application of it that they can hopefully study yeah, in preparation for their exams and stuff. Yeah. It's, I guess the surprising part is it's effective and rudimentary. Right. In, in a way that you're like, oh, this is even simpler than think, pair, share. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and then I guess one question on that too. Um, so I know one thing we're trying to figure out is basically um, at, at our school of pharmacy is how to have students do more of the pre-readings and do, yeah. you know, be more engaged in that part of it, the independent study part. So is that part graded or is it just... No, it's, it's not graded. Own, right? And I, I like that too because, yeah. you know, some places, I know we've done in the past like quizzes to start class and things like that about the readings, but I kind of like that there's, it's not really a high stakes yeah. activity. It is. It's not high stakes. It's it's all for like, this is a, for your benefit. Everything in this packet, will, you will have to apply in some way or the other. It could be a patient case or it could be real low level blooms, which is just like, I want you to recall the spectrum of penum. Like, you got to be able to do that. Um, So things that have not worked out. So things that are not successful. um, I think just fun when when I have taken sort of ID fundamentals and then skipped a couple steps in terms of asking them to apply things that they're probably not ready for. Mm -hmm. That can really be frustrating for even your highest achieving students, and it will cause them to check out. Mm -hmm. So while... I think sometimes in my lecture I sort of debate between like are these two are these baby steps almost like insulting? Sure. Is this spoon feeding? Is this like are they saying they're like we already know this? Let's right. move on. Yeah. Right. Versus like these are the gradual steps to get you from memorization of basic stuff to application of this in a, in a real world setting. Um, so I think that's that's been some of the biggest sort of like pitfalls before. It's just assuming that they are making leaps or connections between things that I haven't actually assessed in the classroom. So yeah, that's, that's sort of like the horror story from like day, you know, like the first year of teaching where, (laughs) where students are like, I don't understand anything. And you're like, wait, that was just basic pharmacology stuff. And they're like, no. 
Right. You asked about this patient case, and I don't get this at all. Yeah, I think I think that connection of, you know, when we teach the higher-level empiric treatment for disease states or something like that, yeah. with the assumption that they know the spectrum of activity right. of these drugs, and then yeah. it's not there. It's not, yeah. not happening. So going back to your first year of teaching, yeah. um, is there something that, some insight that you wish you knew on your first day that yeah. you know now? For sure. So the, I, I think I actually sort of got lucky in the fact that my first day in the classroom was only a half day. So only three hours. Versus <laughs> <laughs> so, six. Versus the six. Yeah. Um, so it was a half day. It was my content was HAP. So oh, I was like, that's nice. I can do this. Yeah. There's, there's A, there's guidelines, there's evidence. I know the evidence. I've done some research in the air. Like I'm feeling prepared. Being actually really knowledgeable about, about your first, about the content of your first lecture is probably a hindrance because you haven't gone through the learning process yourself in mm, a long time. Good point. But regardless, so I went in and, and what happened is I just started teaching about pneumonia and um, talked about you know, like double coverage and mm-hmm. when it would be necessary and what's the purpose of double coverage and all this other stuff. And students raised their hand in the middle of lecture and they're like, Gent doesn't have pseudomonas coverage. And I was like, but it does. <laughs> I just had no response like, for that. Like, yeah, it does. So the students are like, no, like we just learned last week that Jen does not have pseudomonas coverage. And I'm like, Ugh. I I literally don't know how to respond to this other than just like to show you an antibiogram. <laughs> like right. 70% or 80 or 90% of the pseudomonas at various institutions is in fact, in, you know, Do you need this in Jen. black and white? What right. do we need to do? So here? the big lesson learned there, right? So the it's, it was really uncomfortable, really odd sort of scenario to be in. But the big question is, is the big lesson for me was you have to know what has been taught prior to your day. Such a good point. Right. So you, you have to review the prior ID curriculum to know how to build on their they're learned. And that's one of the pitfalls that I see in every school that I have interacted with is that when a teacher has like a one-off lecture. Right. Let's say you're guest lecturing or something. Yeah. And they just have no idea about what their foundations look like. For instance, is gent and anti-pseudomonal versus, you know, and, and how to build on that and the implications of that and for disease day that's going forward. So that was the biggest thing and sort of like, I'm sure it's, it's very fundamental and rudimentary to all the other teachers that are listening to this, but it was a big wake-up call for me that I needed to yeah. review every slide, every objective, every outcome um, prior to my day. It's so true. And when you're first starting and you do get thrown into your first lectures, you have no idea. You don't even know the yeah. curriculum organization most of the time. Right. Like what, what they've learned when and yeah. all that. I was so focused on me. I was so focused on just being nervous about dealing with three hours. Mm-hmm. And students didn't give a crap about me. They <laughs> care about themselves. <laughs> A valid concern. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, so that was the other sort of like learning to shift the focus. It's mm-hmm. not about me. It's about yeah. them. Um, it's not about, I mean, like if I am nervous, that is my problem. If I, you know, like that is not theirs and it's not their problem to deal with. And so that's another sort of long-term lesson um, that was out of that day. Yeah. Those yeah. are great. And kind of, so knowing what someone has taught before you in detail and, you know, especially I think even going into the nuance, you know, do they say that fluoroquinolones are a good option for X, Y, Z or whatever. Um, But along those lines, so say you're mentoring a new faculty member, um, do you have any go-to like books or resources or podcasts or anything like that that you would recommend? Great question. Um, I think for... 
for somebody who's new to teaching, I think the best thing to do is to go sit in the classroom. Mm. So beyond external resources, uh, I would, I would absolutely say like, go sit in it's, you know, it, it doesn't at all have to be your content area. And it, I think it should be both clinical and science folks. Mm, so go go sit in the pharmacology of X of your disease area beforehand, and then go sit and I mean, if it's if you teach in therapeutics, try to go. It is a time suck for sure, but your first year is of faculty is most likely the 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 most time allotted the lightest yeah, yeah I would say the lightest yeah. in terms of what people are expecting from you um it may not feel that way no. uh but but yeah I think you have the most time to sort of do that so above anything else above an outside external resource it's go sit in the classroom if you've got another pharmacy school across town too like yeah broaden your horizons go yeah. see something else no that's great um point. yeah that'd be my first step and then too like even if you're no matter who you're seeing especially in your first year, they're probably more senior than you. So they probably have some good ideas and things that they you can watch that they engage the classroom well or things that they that you could take and put in your own classroom. Yeah. In your own teaching. I think it's, it's two things to look for. One is what is the teacher doing and what is the response in the classroom? So how many if you sit in the back of the classroom as the sort of the the guest uh, how how many uh, students are playing Minecraft right. during this, you know, AFib lecture or whatever it may mm-hmm. be um, versus at least looking at the notes or shopping or whatever they're doing. <laughs> so I think that's another thing to sort of to sort of look at is not just focusing on what the teacher is doing, but what is happening in the yeah, classroom response from the students. Yeah. And where do you get your inspiration for these ideas or where do you get your best ideas? Um, so my mother calls it navel gazing. She thinks to be navel gazing, I think as a criticism, <laughs> it's a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot and marinate a lot and sort of cogitate a lot about, um, things that went well, things that went, uh, poor, uh, poor, but I also really like the solution to those better. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, when you walk out of a classroom setting or you get done, you get, you grade a test and you're like, ah. This is the pits. Like, here are the things that they still don't get. Um, and then sort of, like, trying to solve those problems or coming up with at least surrogates for that. I also have stolen other people's, like, their inspiration. So the inspiration for probably my whole career in terms of gamification mm-hmm. came from uh, Vegas again, where one of my counterparts was really was trying to think about and brainstorming uh, pharmacy poker. Oh. And wanted to create a poker <laughs> game, um, and I, I. So we, in terms of making it an ID game, we tried to come up with, um, like I knew what a pair would be, right? It would be like Vank and MRSA would be a pair, yeah. but how do you? So like the Vank MRSA pair beats a pair of X, right? <laughs> right. So like threes beats twos, but how do you assign these scores to all these pairs? And so we made this, you know, this massive chart that was like. Um, Vank versus MRSA would be like a jack. <laughs> like, that would be the uh, pair. That's cool. But that would beat um, uh, sort of like Mirapenem and E. coli because uh, it's not necessarily the drug of choice. Oh, it matches, right? But for the 
community acquired, you know, E. coli. And it took the fun right out of it. Because <laughs> this was the Jen Remy game, right? Yeah, it was so, yeah. I mean, it was so complicated. And so because of that, I thought, this this does not work. What format does this work in? Because I already invested in the idea. So then came up with uh, ID Gen Rummy. And then from there, have continued to explore, yeah, all of the different gamification sort of things. But yeah, that was my idea. That just was like somebody said pharmacy poker. I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. I'm into you know. <laughs> and we were already in this environment where we were really forced to or encouraged to fill six hours of a classroom day. Sure. Right. And so there was a lot of space to play with things that worked and didn't work. And so, so I think yeah, the thing that so yeah, I'm I'm happy to to build on somebody else's like genius nugget. Yeah. That just is like really sparks. But I think it's so cool because you have the follow through to see it through. Like like you said, it kind of sometimes I feel like the design process can kind of suck the fun out of it because you have yeah. to think about all these angles yeah. and all these you know, making sure your answer keys, you know, all that jazz. Um, but I think what you do really well is see it through and you see it to to the end of whatever it's publication or presentation or whatever. <laughs> and sometimes it's really hard to take something that you've analyzed and nitpicked and sort of like release it into the world, even if it's just to like your classroom, mm-hmm. because it will be criticized, it oh, will yeah. be critiqued. And there are definitely, there's a little bit of like, I you know, are they going to hate this? this thing that I developed that I've invested some time and effort into and, and is it going to be embarrassingly terrible? Uh, there's, you have to be a little bit either you have to be risk, uh, uh, whatever the opposite like of tolerant. inverse is. Yeah. Risk tolerant. Very mm-hmm. good. You have to be risk tolerant to sort of do it or just like, I think with practice, I have become yeah. much better at just being like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it a whirl. Right. Planning. You get way better at planning. True. You don't want to like free frawl it or then no. like, Things really go sideways quick. So, I mean, I think that, you know, through repeated efforts of trying new things, um, will you will just get better at trying new things. Yeah. That no, in itself is a skill. Yeah. I totally agree. And then last question for you. So for this job, this academia job that are you're in that we are in, what is your overall prescription for success? To sort of like steal a little bit of inspiration from when I first was exposed to strength binders. I thought that, that was such a cool concept and like stop trying to fix what you're bad at and go ahead and spend time in what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Um, that felt like a big permission slip for me of like, yeah, wonderful. I can stop thinking about somebody else cares about this <laughs> and they will devote time and effort towards that. Um, so one of the things about academia that is sort of like the blessing and the curse is all the independence mm-hmm. and you can forge your own path. And if you have a path, that's great. If you don't have a path, you meander. And the first so several years of my career looks a lot like meandering. <laughs> um, I'm sure I have some, some better stories maybe than those that walked past. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that I, I should have spent more dedicated time thinking about what I would like to continue to pursue next. I had a ton of one-offs. So like we did this, we looked at this, we analyzed this question, whether it was clinical or academically, and then we just moved on to something else. And I think that story is the same for a lot of people um, starting off because I think people, whether they're senior faculty or colleagues, will throw you an opportunity and just say, hey, do you want to do this? And then you have all this, like you said, kind of random. Yeah. It looks like a buffet. Yeah. Like, I'll have a little of this, a little of this. Uh, and I think the success part of the question, which is like, what's the prescription for success, is 
doing a decent job of investigating what you really like, what really would make you want to come back and look at this same idea or concept in a different way or pivot a little bit from it um, and continue to sort of build it. And I feel like just honestly, relatively recently, you sort of like find your niche. Mm -hmm. And then once you find what your niche is in that, it can actually be massive. Um, But you're sort of uh, in this. It's sort of the opposite of what, you know, an internal medicine person is supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think for, especially in in academia and in career where research and scholarship is going to be part of what you do, Mm -hmm. I think that success is going to be a lot to identify what area do you want to spend the next 10 years exploring. Um, So, yeah, I think that that would be part part of the success part. Great. And that success looks very different. Like, success has got to be sort of, I think, self-driven. Yes, like, there's some promotion involved and what your bosses say. But I think, for me, success is more like, I really am into this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's probably the angle of success that I've been thinking about more so than than others. And I think that's great because it's within, like you said, the framework of what your institution and your... Uh, people above you want you to be doing but because we have so much independence you can say this is what I'm really into and here's why it is successful or yeah. here's why I feel successful doing it and yeah I've like never that. actually I haven't asked this question but I've never had another faculty member tell me I've been assigned a research area or I've been assigned I mean typically we're often assigned like assigned a class like you're the course coordinator mm-hmm. for this or you have to lecture about this uh, because the last person that quit left this empty, you know, thing. Um, and so we are assigned a committee, but there's, for the most part, um, or assigned a practice site. For the most part, I think that what you do in those assignments is largely up to you. I completely agree. And I think that's one of the most fun and kind of freeing things about scholarship is because you can write up something that you're doing that you really enjoy, you know, like all of our game stuff. I think we've been able to write about it and I think it's, it's a really great way to incorporate scholarship into something that we really enjoy. Yes. Yeah. That whole symbiotic thing I think is largely preached for good reason, but Mm -hmm. doesn't become crystallized for, it didn't become crystallized for me until probably a bit uh, later in the whole career than I think people were hoping for or like people would not hoping for but that what people would suggest right that you should take your time to sort of like sample Mm -hmm. what it what it does turn you on what really do you think you're going to be is fruitful for you for the next 10 years and I think I took probably 10 years to do that sampling versus like couple but what else we have good stories yeah exactly